Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and as the January edition of Prospect hits the stands, we're asking whether the world has been sold a pup with globalisation. Did its champions, people like Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, tie their countries to the mast of free trade and forget all about their fellow citizens who were being pushed overboard by its waves? What do open borders and laissez-faire do to our well-being? We'll have a critical look at the so-called happiness industry. The whole thrust of neoliberalism is that inward-looking, you know, Weberian, just always we must be pushing ourselves that little bit harder. And that has very little to do with any sort of community building. And we look at the legacy of one of Britain's most powerful chancellors, Gordon Brown. Was he the architect or the saviour of the crash of 2008? So, can we build a better and happier economy? Well, can we do it in the next 30 minutes? Let's find out. With me today is Robert Skidelsky, the celebrated biographer of John Maynard Keynes and an emeritus professor of political economy at Warwick. Lynn Seagal, a feminist thinker who teaches at Birkbeck, University of London. Her book, Radical Happiness, Moments of Collective Joy, is just out. And down the line from Massachusetts is Danny Roderick, Ford Foundation professor at Harvard University. Welcome to you all. Danny, let's start with you. You call the likes of Tony Blair and Bill Clinton the hyper-globalisers. They promised us the world, but you say they failed to deliver. How so? Well, they failed to deliver for um, large segments of their population, I would say. I think the hyper-globalisation era from the 1990s onward were very good for the professionals, the wealthy, the um, the highly skilled uh, workers or the, the, the financiers um, and the multinational corporations, as indeed uh, it was a very good period for um, some of the developing countries that were able to free ride essentially on, on, on the policies of, of the advanced economies. And of course, China stands out there. But when we look at the middle class, um, they didn't do all that well. And I think that uh, shows up in, in some of the political consequences we've been experiencing in the last couple of years. But surely economics teaches us, or it's meant to teach us, that we trade, we specialise, and that allows us to get richer. So these disgruntled, left-behind people, why didn't it work out like that for them, Danny? 
Well, there were two things uh, that went wrong, and, and ironically, both are things that uh, we should have known because that's what economics teaches. One is that uh, the, the theory of, of comparative advantage and gains from trade presumes that somehow we will uh, take care of the losers. Uh, that is to say that the, the theory uh, makes clear that uh, almost certainly there are going to be uh, some people who are left behind and will be losers in absolute terms, and those in countries like the United States or Europe. Europe tend to be uh, the relatively less skilled workers um, and their communities. And of course, we didn't do that. Uh, you know, in the United States, especially, our ability to provide safety nets and social insurance and compensation to the losers, uh, you know, just didn't do its job. I think the second failure was that uh, with this move towards hyperglobalization after the 1990s, we we doubled down and instead of just tackling import tariffs and, and quantitative restrictions at the border, we started to muck around with uh, regulations behind the border, uh, things like product uh, safety, health regulations, uh, investment rules, uh, intellectual property rights, uh, things that are uh, typically viewed as much more as a domain of, of domestic policies and, and product of domestic social arrangements. And therefore, we risked making uh, international trade rules, the international trade regime, uh, much more uh, politically contested because we inevitably ran up against deeply held values uh, about uh, the desirability of, of uh, regulatory diversity or, or national autonomy in terms of making being able to devise your own regulations. And uh, effectively, we reversed our priorities and, and, and rather than global markets and globalization becoming a, a, a means for an end, which is uh, you know, uh, desirable economic and social ends domestically, our domestic social arrangements became a means to an end, which was to uh, increase access to trade and, and investment. And I think, therefore, we got into a lot of uh, uh, hot water uh, with respect to our domestic politics of trade. Lynn, you're trying to get in. I have a problem with the whole language of losers, actually. It's uh, such a neoliberal jargon, losers. And in particular, for my interests in women, what was no part at all of globalization as it has panned out was any concern with reproductive politics, with the whole system of care that we use that has been outsourced, has been the most massive decline in our caring services because of that. There's so much more to say about that. And I don't think women who've been doing the caring should be seen as losers. I know you just mean losing out, but the language itself I find problematic. So losing, you mean, Danny, do you, that, that you've lost out in the sense that maybe your wages have gone down? Well, I mean it in a broad sense, and, and certainly I don't mean that they're, they're losers in the sense that, you know, they were, the they, were, they, were, they, were, they were somehow, yes, I mean, that they weren't smart enough or able enough or, or uh, I think they, they lost out in a broad sense and, and not just uh, in income terms. I think that was um, most evident mm. in a country like the United States where we've seen Median wages of, of male workers essentially stagnate uh, over a period of, of, of decades, um, while income inequality rose significantly, but more broadly because of a sense that um, they lost their connections with policy elites and uh, policy making to a much greater extent than before, that the, there was a sort of the, this social and cognitive and political 
a division between those who are in charge and making the rules, and um, right. and uh, large segments of society became uh, deeper and deeper. So there was, I think, it goes beyond simply the economics. And I think it's true, Danny. Correct me if I'm wrong. That whereas when male wages were stuck for a long time from the 70s in America, from about the 90s, a lot of women's wages have been stuck too. In a sense, if we can use that word. Losers have been quite a lot of losers in both genders. Um, that is true, and particularly in the same. Com- uh, one of the things that we observe is that that uh, you know people who are adversely affected by things like uh, the China trade or or, or NAFTA. Their economic losses propagate uh, through their communities and their neighborhoods. So if a local factory closes, uh, a a lot of local services are going to be adversely affected and and, and their families and households are going to be affected as well. And so these things uh, tend to propagate. And certainly we cannot say that this was just a male thing. Robert, um, do you think that history teaches us, as an economic historian, that we should have expected something of a backlash from this period of anything goes globalization well i i completely agree with danny's main thesis which is that um uh, globalization isn't irreversible it's quite reversible but i'd i'd like to take you up danny on something else i think you shy away from one logical implication of your um idea of the trilemma um which is the incompatibility of democracy national sovereignty and cross border economic integration because It seems to me that if you think of democracy as a condition, world democracy is impossible, and therefore the logical implication is that globalization will break up. But you don't accept that because you sort of think we could do quite a number of things which would make it acceptable. You know, this is interesting, and that's why I I actually make a distinction between the kind of globalization that we had, let's say, until the 1990s and the period of hyper-globalization subsequently. And and I think this goes back to Keynes' own understanding of of what kind of globalization we could actually have and and, uh, the design of the Bretton Woods regime that lasted for maybe about Mm -hmm. three, four decades after 1944. And I think in Keynes' view, it was possible to have a kind of a globalization uh, that mostly focused on international trade, long-term investment, uh, certainly not finance, uh, of course, because he he thought that uh, finance should be controlled and and capital control should be the norm rather than the exception, but that there was uh, a a kind of um, restrained kind of globalization of trade and foreign investment, long-term investment that was possible and that would provide significant room for domestic economic management. And I think you know that kind of globalization is, is is entirely possible. I think where we run into a problem is is when we re- reverse our priorities, as I said earlier, and um, and start to go after domestic regulations and domestic um, tax policies uh, in order to make globalization an end in itself. And that's certainly incompatible with democracy. Robert's looking a bit skeptical, as if you you're slightly pulling your punches. Uh, well, there still. Well, well I, I was just wondering whether you can get people to sign up to this restrained version of globalization. I mean, it seems to me there are lots of uh, conflicts of interest. I'm not sure you can get developing countries to sign up to it um, because most of the uh, regulatory frameworks that have been proposed uh, actually favor the richer part of the world. 
Well, I would say the richer the richer segments of the richer part of the world. So, yeah. uh, so that's I think part of the problem is that that the negotiations, the terms of the negotiations for trade rules have been uh, determined by investors, by pharmaceutical companies, by multinational corporations, and therefore we get a very skewed pattern of what is it that we're really negotiating when we're negotiating these things. One might imagine a very different kind of negotiation where in fact, instead we're talking about um, uh, harmonizing corporate tax rates so that uh, we remove um, corporate tax competition. We can imagine negotiating about uh, employment conditions and labor standards so that workers have a, have a decent uh, working environment. Uh, so when one could envisage uh, negotiating very different things. But I don't think that's entirely realistic for the same reason. And you mentioned developing countries, and developing countries are not going to have much interest uh, in telling rich countries how to uh, do their, how to manage their labor relations. So I think developing countries by and large have benefited from uh, until very recently from benign neglect in the system. So that I, I, I always say that China played the globalization rule by Bretton Woods rules. That is to say, it essentially applied the same kind of rules uh, of, of that would have prevailed if Keynes had, had prevailed, which is, you know, they manage their capital flows, they uh, ran their industrial policies freely, they imposed all kinds of restrictions on foreign investors. So I think what needs to be understood from both sides is that we can have a healthy globalization, but it would be one that provides significant room for policy autonomy for countries on both sides of this trade. Well, some economists moved seamlessly on from their controversial selling job on globalisation to promoting happiness as the supreme criterion of social policy. Now, Lynn, in a world where there's plainly too much misery, economics has often been charged with neglecting the human dimension. So isn't it really a good idea, in David Cameron's words, to replace GDP with GWB or general well-being? What's not to like about that? What's not to like about it is um, the question of whether we're quantifying something that we would all agree was about individual and social well-being. And so is happiness something that is quantifiable? And, and why is it being measured now? And what perhaps is not being measured? What's being pushed aside? So there's all sorts of criticisms of the happiness industry, which I make in my book, Radical Happiness. It's not just that happiness isn't best seen as simply an internal state. If you go back to Aristotle and those who've tried to theorise happiness, they talk about happiness as a way of being in the world, a sense of agency, Mm. of being able to have a meaningful and virtuous life. And um, so that's one thing that it's also running through my book is the idea that joy and woe are woven fine, as Blake said 300 years ago, that what makes us happy also makes us vulnerable, also makes us subject to loss. Then there's two other main things that are problematic about the measuring of happiness, and that is it easily becomes a form of social control smile or die, as Barbara Ehrenreich and others have said. Mm. If you're not smiling in those fast food shops, you're likely to be losing your job. And of course, it's sidelining what we really should be thinking about, what to do about all the anxiety and fear and lack of hope in better futures at the moment. Now, when we 
ask people as these government surveys have been doing for some time now you know how happy are you out of 10 like when do you feel fulfilled about your life on reflection yesterday those kind of questions and some psychologists put an awful lot of weight on the answers to that and say it correlates with you know depression and god knows what else but I get the sense from what you've written for us that you think despite those official surveys suggesting that happiness has gone up, that that might be a mirage. Yes, the very day my book was published, uh, we heard that uh, in general in England, people were feeling happier. But the same Office of National Statistics putting that out was also putting out other statistics were completely incompatible with that, that one in four young women under 16 were suffering from clinical depression, that 50% of young women felt that they were being bullied and harassed on social media and therefore had no self-confidence, that the suicide rates among men, particularly young men, were going up, Mm. but also... You know, um, economists were suggesting that one reason people weren't investing more in the future was that we have such a dystopian sense of the future, you know, that everything is actually getting worse. And of course, MI5 is warning us that, yes, there will definitely be more terrorist attacks very soon. So, you know, what are we doing in saying people are feeling happier when we surely know, we surely do know that people are feeling very troubled about the future? Gosh, so unremittingly bleak from Linda. Danny, um, is this argument about whether we should, uh, you know, organise economies and, um, and, and social policies around subjective self-assessment of how happy people are, is that as, as big a talking point in the US as it is over here? Not really, but I, it, there has been significant uh, academic discussion around the issue of, of happiness or, or life satisfaction. Um, my reading of the literature is that that, that measures of, of uh, life satis- satisfaction, that is to say when people ask on a scale of one to ten, um, how would you rate your overall uh, life satisfaction, uh, tends to produce sort of more stable uh, results uh, as opposed to Uh, measures of happiness, which uh, seem to uh, depend uh, significantly on mood or or recent events and are very volatile. And of course, we have a a country that uh, has taken this uh, uh, very seriously. Bhutan um, uh, publishes annually gross uh, national happiness index. um, And I think that's um, uh, quite an interesting experiment. I think there is useful uh, uh, information uh, in uh, life satisfaction surveys, uh, uh, which uh, GDP or other economic measures obviously um, do not measure. So I think as a supplementary measure, I think it's quite helpful. Okay, so a cheery view there. Yeah. Now, Robert, you've written a book on some of this stuff as well, yeah, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, we're, we're all in the same subject game, yeah. But no, I have a, I have a, a question, which is that... Um, if you start thinking about these things, you immediately come to challenge the growth agenda because there's a sort of lack of correlation between scales of happiness as recorded and gross domestic product or gross national product. In fact, people's happiness doesn't seem to rise um, with their income. That's not true, quite true distributionally, but it is in general terms. Now, if that's the case, why are we still... Um, interested in growth. Um, if, it, if you have a distributional question, um, then of course you redistribute income within, within uh, societies. But to um, go for GDP growth as the arc of the covenant in, 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 in policy seems to be unbacked 
by any empirical findings concerning the relationship between growth GDP terms and happiness. And people, this is not a new point, Robert, is it? There's a famous Bobby Kennedy thing about, you know, GDP measures everything apart from the clarity of our water and the air we breathe and the safety on our streets. So for for years and years, people have been saying this, and yet we're still doing it. Um, Why do you think it is? Is it just the addiction to something you can count? Because it solves all, it seems to solve all problems, growth. I mean, all the all the very, very serious distributional problems and problems about the ends of life and uh, what is the race about seem to be solved or overcome or postponed or sidelined by just having your objective as GDP growth. Well, I don't think Naomi Klein or anyone concerned with the environment, with uh, climate change and so on would possibly talk about growth as something we simply yeah, accept but, without being extremely critical of it. And sustainability, yeah. sustainable growth is surely where we have to begin, which is a very different place to yeah, begin. But, but and it's not where the policymakers begin. They're still, not. they're still always worried if the rate of growth that their forecast isn't realised. How can you get it higher? How can you increase productivity? I mean, those are the kind of things that seem to worry the policymakers. They pay lip service to sustain and distributional things, but they don't do much about it. Danny, can I just pip in here on behalf of the authorities, because someone's got to, which is surely they need a lot of GDP if they're going to run any social policies, because it's only when you've got GDP you can collect taxes on it. If there's if there's something that's going through the books and being accounted for, you can tax it, and then you can do your social policy. If not, you can't. Well, uh, you know, I, I actually don't think that life satisfaction is so delinked from, uh, from GDP. I, I think if we look across countries, countries, actually measures of self-reported life satisfaction uh, are positively correlated with um, average uh, GDP per capita, that within countries um, that, again, self-reported life satisfaction tends to rise uh, with income. Uh, I'm not saying that mm. that's the only thing, uh, but I don't think that there is a there is a disconnect uh, uh, between those things. But the other thing that we see in this data is that, that a lot of other things go in in determining uh, life satisfaction as well. It is a reason that uh, self-reported life satisfaction tends to be higher in Scandinavian countries compared to um, other countries where inequality um, is much higher and social services are, are, are much worse. Um, and so there are a lot of other things that, that goes into that. And I think I, I wouldn't be in favor of uh, jet, jettisoning measures of income or GDP, uh, but I think there is valuable additional information uh, in these self-reported measures of life satisfaction. Thanks. Um, Lynn, um, Robert wrote a book a few years ago on um, how much is enough, it was called, and it went through uh, different things that over the years people have thought were um, uh, important for a good life, health, security, friendship. Your book focuses in much more on this idea of radical happiness, which is something you trace back, um, to my surprise, to medieval high days, holidays and carnivals. Before we uh, wrap this section up, can you just tell us a bit more about 
you know, what what kind of things do you think we could do if we really wanted to make people fulfilled, let's say, if not happy? There are many aspects to radical happiness I talk about, but actually it begins from a notion of Hannah Arendt and public happiness that um, to find life meaningful and significant, you ought to feel you can play a, a role in public life, you know, to really have some democratic responsibility. And then other people took that up to say... Uh, Adrian Ritz, for instance, the American poet, said that um, when we're happy is often when we're together with other people, able to celebrate something with them. She talked about being in Chile with the uh, overthrow of Pinochet or other times when we really have something to celebrate that we feel a part in helping to create. Now, I went from that to say that the happiness industry, the talk about happiness, has very little to say about joy and that joy in public life traditionally has been partly associated with religion but also with free public events. And that's what's been declining systematically. Barbara Ehrenreich wrote about it in her book um, Dancing in the Street, literally about dancing in the street and the decline of carnivals. And Actually, sometimes, of course, we do still get those free public celebrations. Actually, we did under Ken Livingston when he was at the GLC. We were always going down to uh, for a concert or some event down there. But, but the whole thrust of neoliberalism is that inward-looking, you know, Weberian, just always we must be pushing ourselves that little bit harder. And that has very little to do with any sort of community building. So in my book... To focus on care, to focus on our dependence on each other, the good society is about recognising that and creating new conditions for being able to be there together with others and helping others is an altogether different approach to one that simply looks at productivity. So, you know, some people are saying we should begin with reproductive politics, we should begin with care, that's what we need to begin with. Listening to you there, it's making me think some of those carnivals against capitalism, against the kind of hyper-globalisation that Danny was talking about before might be occasions of public joy as you see it. But let's turn now to one thoughtful globaliser who has been very influential in his time, Gordon Brown. Prime Minister for three years until 2010, but before that, Chancellor for a full decade. Now, we've got um, an essay by Jonathan Friedland in this month's prospect, which identifies the London G20 summit uh, in April 2009, at the heart of the financial crisis, of course, as um, Brown's finest hour. A fleeting moment, he says, when um, the leaders of the big economies moved in sync under the um, guiding hand of Gordon Brown. But Robert, Gordon also got too close to the banks, going along with all that light touch regulation and the PFIs before they bankrupted themselves and and, and, and the rest of us. Something you refer to in, a, in, in your piece as, as something of a pact with the devil. So should we see him when it comes to that global financial crisis as a villain or a hero of the crash? Well, I think uh, during the financial crisis of 2008-2009, he was a hero. There was a power vacuum because it was transition between Bush and Obama. And for six months or so, Gordon Brown orchestrated the response to the financial collapse. I mean, orchestrated uh, a huge amount of fiscal stimulus um, and also uh, monetary stimulus. Basically, he wrote the G20 
communiques um, in that period. And in April 2009, there was a big conference in London, and Gordon Brown really uh, set the agenda of that. And I think that stimulus in those six months actually prevented the Great Recession from becoming a Great Depression. Mm. The world collapsed, bottomed out, and a sort of recovery got going after that. But all that time, his domestic political base was crumbling, and the Conservatives were able to make him the victim of their spin, which is that he had left the public finances in a terrible state, with a very large, huge budget deficit, and that it was their, their task to clean it up, clean up the Orgian stables. Well, that was not true. In fact, he was a fairly prudent chancellor. He, on the whole, he kept to his golden rules and his various fiscal rules when the time he was chancellor. And the big deterioration of the public finances came as a result of the financial, financial crash. But anyway, uh, uh, he, he wasn't there to clean it up or to make the case that a, a deficit was a good thing to have when the the economy is collapsing all around you. So um, he became a victim of that. As to uh, trusting too much in, um, in finance, you're right. I think he did. But then everyone did. They had a view of the economy in which finance was entirely benevolent. Um, and, um, and therefore the revenues um, which he was uh, getting as chancellor from the inflated financial sector actually paid for a lot of the investment he wanted to do in hospitals and schools. But of course, when the financial system collapsed, it was revealed that the government was living beyond its means, that it, you know, the, revenues was, the revenues collapsed with the collapse of the financial system. Danny, um, in the United States, um, there was that move, as Robert just alludes to, from from the Bush administration to the Obama administration, right at the moment when everything was at its um, worst point. Gordon Brown started talking quite early, uh, you know, as Lehman was going down about the need for a fiscal stimulus. Does it play into American politics at all, the fact that you'd got this guy in Britain who was is, is feeding the way, or do you think America just like isn't that interested in the rest of the world and Obama was going to do what Obama did anyway? It's only when I read uh, the uh, Friedland piece that I remembered that, uh, in fact, Gordon Brown had been a global leader in terms of getting that early uh, stimulus and and coordinating around that, which was the high point of global uh, cooperation after the the crisis. But that here and and this side of the Atlantic, that's really seen much more of of an Obama thing. And I think if it didn't fit uh, with the with the Obama uh, priorities, I'm not sure that uh, there would have been much. But let me say this: I, I have the greatest respect for 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 Gordon Brown, and I think the uh, as the piece um, brings out, uh, he is he has been long a, a, a very very thoughtful and deep analyst um, on, on, on globalization. Uh, I hope I'm not overly biased by the fact that he wrote a blurb for my uh, 2011 book, uh, which I was surprised <laughs> about because it, it essentially took a line on globalization, which was um, quite at variance uh, with the policies that sort of one associates, um, you know, him and, and, and Tony Blair, obviously. But he's always been very thoughtful, and I think he understood uh, much earlier than 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 many other leaders uh, some of these problems that were being created. Now, Lynn, we mentioned Tony Blair. Then the, the the two of them often seen as a double act created new Labour together. But from your kind of radical point on the 
political spectrum, would you draw a big distinction between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown now, or do you see them as, as, as Tweedledum and Tweedledee? Well, I think that we would agree that there was a problem in Gordon Brown's relation to the banks. And I don't think Robert's quite right to say nobody was criticising the emphasis on financial capital. Um, Many on the left, going right back to the 50s, and Baron and Sweezy were talking about the fact that profits were coming mainly from finance capital, that there wasn't enough investment going into um, production, there wasn't enough investment in R&D, not to mention all the other issues which feminists like me were concerned with, which were around reproduction and care. Brown did listen on that. Brown was interested in what women had to say about um, how easily um, those involved in care work could be overlooked. And they're certainly the people who since Brown have been totally overlooked. I mean, 85% of the cuts which have happened since 2008 have hit women because of their role in care work, either as the paid carers or as the home carers. Mm. So, you know, overwhelmingly then it's women who have suffered. And you can partly uh, say there was a problem with Brown in relation to um, the banks and also not doing enough around reversing the deregulization that had happened in relation to finance capital. So there was a problem, although he had some concern with our concerns, <laughs> uh, which got a lot worse very fast after 2008. Robert, I'm interested in whether the economic argument you talk about in the piece that that, that George Osborne one, you know, politically he did, he got this austerity line across and it became, we've got to fix this or the economy's broken, the deficit is the only show in town when it comes to saving Britain. I'm wondering if that's just finished now, if it's changed. And the last budget, Philip Hammond is a very cautious guy called Spreadsheet Phil. He was talking about, we need to invest, we need to invest, we need to invest. He was taking rhetorically, if not in the substance, very much a Skidelsky-like line. Yeah, well, I think people have been surprised by the weakness of the recovery. The the forecasts tended to show stronger recoveries, and America has been best in the recovery, Britain somewhere in, in the middle, Eurozone worst until just the last few months. So I think they, they all feel that the previous model was broken, and you mustn't just concentrate on the budget. You must concentrate on the interaction between the budget and the economy. Um, but there isn't a new paradigm and I think to go back to the Brown-Blair thing, the, the difficulty is to um, find an electable uh, left-of-centre project in politics. The right actually are making most of the running uh, on the discontent side of things. I mean, the left uh, haven't got a project, really. Uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union obviously eliminated, then the discredit of social democracy. And so Brown was trying to do the best he could within a neoliberal um, paradigm, and they called it the third way, but it was just really neoliberalism with with what they thought was a human face. And I think we've got to really do a lot of hard thinking about where is the left, where is the left project for the Western world um, in this the in 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 the in the years ahead. Surely, in Britain right now, the left does think 
it has a project with all the excitement around Corbyn becoming leader of the Labour Party. Now, Elect- what's going to happen? Electable what's project, going to happen when I... he's elected, and it is quite likely when? he could be well, elected, well. Um, is another issue. How how he is going to have the resources for greater redistribution, for greater um, sustainable investment and green politics and so on is very much an issue. But... Um, I'm not sure why you would think he was unelectable. Well, what's one of the conclusions that uh, the Brown-Blair duo drew um, from the failure of Labour to uh, get elected on the back of Thatcherism, which was terribly destructive of of, uh, working class and and, and socialist aspirations. So they thought, you know, a left-wing party couldn't be elected. And I think in America, this is being argued about, and Bernie Sanders showed that there was some momentum behind a left-wing project, but it didn't uh, overcome Trump. Danny, a final word to you. I know you've done some thinking recently about neoliberalism and uh, really what what that amounted to. What's your reaction to Robert's suggestion that we can see the old model isn't working, but we're not doing so well at coming up with a new one? I actually I, I agree with with Robert that um, that the, the left has really lagged behind uh, in terms of coming up uh, with a uh, electorally appealing um, uh, agenda and an alternative narrative to the right. It's really remarkable how much uh, it's the right has been the beneficiary of the backlash uh, against market fundamentalism and, and hyper globalization and what came to be called neoliberalism. Uh, you know, 25 years ago, you would have said it would have been naturally the the left that ought to have benefited from this. But I think much of the left, uh, certainly the center left, and I think it was you know, new labor in, in, in the UK, the, the social democrats and the socialists in Europe, and, and the, the democratic party in the United States that, that essentially uh, ended up being the cheerleaders of, of the kind of, of uh, globalization and market fundamentalism that um, has has come up short. So we definitely do need um, the, the left and the progressive left to be able to be revived. And I think in the United States, the Bernie Sanders uh, wing of the party uh, is, is, is one possibility. As for Britain, I will leave uh, Corbyn's prospects to the real experts uh, on the other end of the line. <laughs> So uh, thinking caps on for any leftists who are listening out there. But that is it for Headspace this month. Huge thanks to Lynn, to Danny and to Robert. The January edition of Prospect magazine, which is in the shops um, from Thursday, featuring all three of these splendid essays, plus more besides, including Miri Rubin on the long and sexist history of Adam and Eve and Gavin Stamp asking just how good is the architect Richard Rogers. You can pick it up in the shops, but even better if you've enjoyed the discussion, visit Prospect prospectmagazine.co.uk and hit subscribe. You know you want to. And don't forget the whole first series of our other podcast series is now available. How to Fix with Steve Bloomfield. It soars above the political fray and drills down into the big policy questions, not least among them, Brexit. That's prospectmagazine.co.uk slash how to fix. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio and we'll see you again next time. Goodbye and thanks for listening.